wading into the muck of dealing with your finances, setting financial expectations, trying to save money. What does any of that have to do with like perfectly manicured white children? Yes. Excellent question. Welcome to Too Legitimate to Quit, instantly actionable small business strategies with a pop culture spin. I am your host, Annie P. Ruggles, and my guest today is Kate Grayson. Kate Grayson is the money coach and founder of Beyond Money. At Beyond Money, Kate helps folks maximize their personal financial lives to access their ideal lifestyle and future while still meeting their financial obligations. Kate is on a mission to make financial services available to all, not just the wealthy. So Kate, you and I are buds and we could banter forever, but that's not the point of this show. The point of the show is actionable small business advice. And you are an expert in something that a lot of people desperately want and desperately fear. I'm talking about money. Let's get right on into it. Kate, what do small business owners need to know today? Small business owners need to know exactly what they are spending, both in their businesses and in their personal lives. You cannot make any financial choices, any decisions until you know exactly what's coming in and exactly what's going out. I love that because it seems like it seems pretty obvious on paper, right? Like, yeah, I'm a business. I should know what I'm spending. But actually going through the practice of knowing what you're spending and and ritualizing that practice and having that practice is is actually something that like only an extremely small amount of business owners do yeah what is that like why do we not take the step that we know we need to take is it lack of knowledge is it fear is it both it's because it's scary and it's intimidating we all especially women were you know, raised to believe that like money is not our thing, you know, that we're not, that that's not ladylike to be like super focused on money. And we internalized that, whether or not our politics, you know, evolved to like believing that we still have internalized it. And it takes a lot of work to change that programming. And so we don't think we're good at it. And then it's also scary. Um, and that combination and it makes it ripe to just avoid, avoid, avoid. And most of us keep money just locked into a little corner in the back of their head and we don't address it. We keep thinking like, I'll get to it next month. I'll get to it next year. And honestly, most of us don't. And I think everybody needs to be familiar with their money and their spending, but especially small business owners, because your business income is directly related to your ability to live your life. And If you can't, you know, you can't just rely on the salary always coming in. If you don't have the knowledge of your money, you don't have a knowledge of what you need on a personal side. You can't know what you have to bring in on the business side. And, um, and yeah, I almost, so with everybody I work with, I make them start by guessing what they spend (laughs) categories. And this 
And most people think that they're right. You know, they guess, okay, I probably spend $200 on groceries. Maybe I spend, you know, $50 on shopping, maybe whatever. Everybody guesses it. I have never had anybody be accurate. Um, Sometimes the difference is about $500, but sometimes it's more like 5,000 and depending on the scale of your income. And the point is, is that none of us know what we're spending. So Mm. it does seem obvious and yet it could not be further from. I love your, your approach though, of, of having really needing to know your personal stuff because full disclosure, I think I know my business numbers pretty well out and in. It did not used to be like that. I used to sort of understand what I had coming in. I would totally ignore what I had going out. And I would be like, I made profit. And I'm like, no, I didn't. Shut up. I have worked really hard to become a big girl and look at my business finances. But a lot of my listeners and a ton of people in my network, and I know this is also true for you, are not only small businesses, they're solopreneurs. So maybe they have, like me, like we're a two-income household. And, and that matters. Like my husband has this wonderful corporate reliable job. God bless you, IBM. But at the same point, like I don't ever think that my, it's so weird. It's like I silo the money differently, even though there's no reason for this. I don't think about what I'm spending personally unless I broke. Yeah. Then I will go, okay, do I need this underwear subscription or do I need to do so much shopping at Ross Dress for Less? That is the only good thing about COVID is that I have not been able to go to Ross. And so I've saved <laughs> thousands of dollars this year. But hey, Ross, sponsor my podcast. But um, but yeah, I think it's how do we how do we build the habit of looking at these numbers, both business and professional, in a way that not motivating because if you're broke, you're broke. And if you need to hustle, you need to hustle. But how do we approach our finances and and doing this discovery with a calmer mind? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, First of all, I want to just say that your experience is really common. Most business owners or solopreneurs I work with have their business finances pretty well under control. As business owners, you know, we're driven people by nature and we don't want to let our businesses fail. So we usually have that, you know, pretty well under control. Yeah. Sometimes we pretend that revenue is profit, which, you know, we all know isn't, but, um, (laughs) you know, but like generally the trend is that I see is that people have their business finances under control, but then since our businesses are so, intertwined with ourselves, with our personalities, we think that the work is done. I don't think that business owners are being like willfully ignorant or like anything like that when it comes to personal finances. It's just that so much of your energy gets taken up by the business that sometimes it doesn't feel like there's a lot left for the personal. So when I work with solopreneurs, business owners, anybody like that, I make us look through, um, look through finances from a personal lens and make it personal first, because I think that that's, I mean, I know it's just not common for business owners when you're in like business coaching or anything like that, it obviously can move into the personal realm, but it's business first, always business first. And I think with money, we really, really forget that fundamentally our business is meant to serve us. That's why it exists. Like, yes, I hope that there is a wider purpose for it. I hope you believe in it. I hope you're doing good work, et cetera. 
Like fundamentally, you work in your small business to provide for yourself. Yeah, um, it's a business. Yeah, exactly. This is one of the things I say all the time. Labors of love are still labors. Mm-hmm. Right? So like if you didn't do this as your job, you would have to go get a job. And exactly. you would look at that job as a job. But sometimes when there's so much of our heart and soul in, and I know that I've thought this way, like for years and years and years, the, the reason my previous brand was the idea duolo is because people treat these businesses like children. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, they eat your money and time and peace like children. But at the same point, your business is a business. You're doing this to help other people. Simon Sinek, start with why. All of that's incredibly important. But the why that we leave out is the why that you're talking about, which is the why of I am doing this to create a nest egg for myself. I am doing this to make myself financially solvent. And I am doing this so I don't have a job. Yeah. And I think we leave it out um, because we think it's bad, because we think it's shameful, because we think that the only like appropriate reason to have a business is for like altruistic, I want to change the world. And that is certainly one component for many people, but we think that it's like dirty and gross and just makes you a bad person to talk and think about the hell yeah, I have this business to make money for myself. Like I want yeah. my subscription. I want my, you know, whatever it is for anything. I want my like, you know, $15 honey. Like, I'm sorry. I like it. I like my, you know, Chicago made honey. That's what gives you joy. That's what brings you pleasure. And you're not relying on anybody else for that honey. You are making the money so that you can buy your own honey. Exactly. Yeah. And, but when, to bring it back to your original question, (laughs) is not any super easy or super fun way to become like intimately familiar with your money. It is scary change is always scary. And especially when it's around something as loaded as money. Um, it, I wish I could like say to all my clients that this will always every day, every time be the most fun thing they've ever done. Right. But that's not true. I don't, you know, own a carnival, I own a money coaching business. Um, (laughs) and I, but I have seen time and time again, the change in people's like stress load, their happiness in their lives, their comfort in their lives, their sense of security and stability when they rip the mandate off, when they become familiar, even if it means you have to make some changes that maybe you didn't want to make, um, the light on the other side of the tunnel or whatever, however you say that is so wonderful to just wake up every day knowing that like you are in control, you've got this, you know, that everything you're spending on is a consciously chosen reflection of your values, reflection of your priorities, reflection of the life you want to live. And that doesn't mean that you need to be, you know, a super low spender or anything like that. I don't judge anything anybody wants to spend, what they want to prioritize, if they want to, you know, prioritize spending over paying off debt, whatever, like any of that is cool. It's just about taking off those blinders and being able to address it like eyes wide open and reach a state of clarity about your And making deliberate choices. Yeah, exactly. Right? Not letting your finances happen, but having a hand in them. And I I love that you brought up like that unpleasantness and the fear and all of these things, because that's definitely how I felt in the past. It's been like 
fear and shame and confusion and guilt, like we were talking about, right? And all of these different things. But it kind of was like, I needed to give myself a permission slip to put myself in that vein, knowing it was temporary, so that I could make a million empowering decisions. So I had to make one big leap into a puddle of nasty in order to then on the flip side, number one, understand how much I am bringing in and have pride about that, but also go, hey, all of these things that I'm superfluously spending money on are actually sabotaging my success because they're not important. And I'm not yeah. talking about $12 honey. We all have our $12 honey. If I see anything with Angela Lansbury's face on it, I will buy it. I will. I will just do it, right? But I mean, there's a $4,000 thing on a uh, caftan on Poshmark that she wore to present an Oscar for approximately five minutes. And oh. and I was like, oh, okay, so now I need to be extremely rich so I can buy this caftan. Everyone thinks I'm insane for even wanting this thing. I am not normally, I told you, I'm the queen of Ross. I do not normally spend exorbitant amounts of money on anything. But, you know, someday if I make it rich and I get a book deal and I want to buy a caftan word for five minutes by Angela Lansbury, I'm going to do it. Yes. And it's, I have no problem. I, I agree completely with wanting to, like, have money to spend on the things that you want. And it does not matter what you want. I am this close to buying, like, a $900 indoor, like, hydroponic vegetable growing thing. That might not be irrational. But I really want it. But the thing is, like, I planned for it. Not for that specifically. Um, but for, like, you know, for my finances are fine. Like, they're in, I, I, I organize them so that I can then once a year or whatever, like, when this weird urge strikes me, buy something like that. And I want everybody to have that freedom where whatever it is, whatever the scale of the dollar amount is for them, whatever the object is for them. I want them to be able to buy that caftan or buy the hydroponic system with, because they've given themselves the gift of like the structure that will allow them to. Ooh, I love that. Say that again. They give themselves the gift of structure. Tell me a little bit more about what that means. Yeah. Um, so I find that the missing link with a lot of my clients is not having a financial structure in place. Like people who are bringing in good income and yet are still in debt that they don't want to be in, who are, who are, have, you know, low savings accounts, like all of these things that, you know, I suppose on paper, rationally, their income doesn't dictate that they should be in that financial situation. There is the income, there is the cash flow. It's just that without a structure in place, like the money doesn't know where to go, what to do. Like money wants to have a job. It wants to know like, okay, two grand is going to this credit card. Like, and then when this credit card's paid off, it's going to that car loan and then it's going to my vacation savings fund. And then like it all happens and it happens so much more smoothly when you just know like, this is what I'm spending money on, on my expenses. And then this is what I have to go towards my debt or my savings or any of that. And again, like it sounds so simple, but it's not, it's usually the missing link. And what I love about that is that it's actually sort of an easy problem to solve. Um, you know, it's, well, I don't mean that in a flippant way. I mean that it's a more fun problem to solve than like if you were earning 
$2,000 a month, but spending 5,000. We've yeah. got to cut out a lot. Like that sucks. That's going to be hard. That won't be fun. But if you're earning 5,000 and you're spending on like the stuff you care about is actually only 2,000. And there's that 3,000 of room that just once you're aware that you were spending 3,000 on stuff you actually don't care about, that can like just go to your credit card debt. And it's like sort of as simple as that. That is an amazing, amazing gift to give yourself of just having that structure. Or saving. Imagine that. Save. Ooh. So (laughs) this is also a weird pop culture podcast. And one of my very favorite things is when I get our little pre-interviews back and I find out what you have chosen to uh, tie money into. And you chose a show that I have successfully avoided for decades. Um, But to do due diligence and because we're buds, I decided to sit down and watch a lot of this teen dramedy of financial errors. And of course, I am talking about Gossip Girl, Kate, what the heck does having permission to look at your money, wading into the wading into the muck of dealing with your finances, setting financial expectations, trying to save money, what does any of that have to do with like perfectly manicured white children? Yes, excellent question. On the surface, it doesn't really connect, and I see that. And for anybody who is a Gossip Girl um, viewer. Um, I don't want to talk about the rich Upper East Side kids. We all know that they are billionaires. We know that they, that that is not our life. We know that that is just like fantasy fun, the same way that watching like Cinderella would be. But (laughs) yes, the fantasy of scrubbing your stepmother's toilet. Oh, how lovely. I want to talk about the Humphreys. Um, They are portrayed in the show. Um, For anybody who hasn't watched, they live in Brooklyn. They're like an artist family. And they're portrayed as being middle class of like barely um, managing it. You know, the dad, the the show starts with the parents have just separated. So presumably this is never addressed. The family is supporting two households, one upstate and one in Brooklyn. The kids are on partial scholarships to private schools, but if you know anything about private education, a partial scholarship still means you're paying like at least 30 grand um, yeah. for each kid. And they have this large, like three bedroom loft in Brooklyn, um, which yes, maybe they purchased it in the nineties, but like still um, the taxes alone. Will so say the property like- taxes in Brooklyn. I mean, yeah. we're both Chicagoans. Uh, my brother lived in Brooklyn for a really long time. The, you lost me at middle class and Brooklyn. If you're raising a family and property that you own yeah. in Brooklyn. Yeah. And the dad um, owns an art gallery. He's a retired musician. He was like sort of hot for a moment in the 80s, but like isn't cool anymore. And so owns an art gallery. And so anyways, like all of these things, you know, the property tax for the gallery that he owns, probably 50 grand property tax on their hat, on their condo. 50 grand private school for both of the kids, maybe another 50 grand total a year if we're being generous. So that is like 150 grand just on like the bare essentials. Yeah. And so we probably double that, maybe a little more. We're looking at them having like a lifestyle that costs 
three to four hundred thousand dollars a year minimum, basically. Minimum. 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 Yeah. And that is not middle class. When compared to the Upper East Siders, sure, they make it look grungy and whatever. But I think that TV's uh, depiction of families like the Humphreys and of really just any family like this that has sort of somehow has glamorous, cool lives, even though they're meant to be like the poor ones, um, are really, really doing damage. Like I said, we all know that we're not the Upper East Side billionaires, sure. But we grew up, I grew up watching people like the Humphreys thinking like, oh, that's middle class. Like, okay, I can do that. That That's semi-easily obtainable if I follow all the rules and work really hard and do my due diligence. Then I'll wind up in the middle class because that's the American promise, the American dream, right? And then you're like, oh, and and by that I mean I will live in a Sex in the City apartment and I will have the coffee budget of everyone on Friends Mm -hmm. and I will be able to do all of that on a waitress or journalist salary or in the case of Gossip Girl a washed up musician turned gallery owner with several perfectly quaffed children. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that is not reality on, we could go into how that's not real on many fronts, but I'm sure everybody listening knows that. Um, <laughs> and, but the problem is, is that like, since we don't talk about money as a society and this is where it links in, we we don't realize that that's not normal. We didn't grow up having our parents and our parents' friends and our aunts and uncles and everybody talking about what their incomes were, what their life, what the life you grew up with cost. You know, I grew up, I mean, I thought that like the salary of like $50,000 was like a kajillionaire, you know, as an adult, I know it's not, but as a kid, I just absorbed, you know, all of these things. And so I thought that like, you know, a life like that was just easily attainable because I didn't know any better because nobody was talking any differently. And now I think we all have a better theoretical understanding of what money can buy. But yet I see time and time again with clients that they think that what is wrong with me? Like on my income, how can I not have a life like that? How can I not you know, I'm a lawyer or I own a successful, you know, I'm a successful solopreneur, digital marketer. Like, how can I not, how am I having to choose between like a gym membership and, you know, going on a couple vacations? Like, how is that my life? I thought that this money was meant to go further and it creates such shame because we think that we're doing something wrong. And really it's just shows like Gossip Girl and our cultures in general, like silence around money that has made us think that we're like the only ones alone on a weird Island, unable to figure it out. Whereas we've all been sold a lie about what money can buy, about what life costs, about all of these things. And we're not alone. Um, And, and I think that the healing process for this, again, to go back to what I said in the beginning has to start with, Two things. One, understanding your money, you know, understanding what you actually make if you're a solo producer or a business owner, understanding what you actually spend on your life and figuring out what spending is most important to you, what will be most impactful in your life. You know, we don't all 
we're not all uh, Rufus Humphrey who can go like marry his billionaire uh, teenage girlfriend um, and have her like and then move into their I mean, marrying billionaire teenage. uh, So that was one of the things. Like, so I skipped around a lot because I was like, I got to sort of, I have this call with Kate. I got to figure out what's going on. And I went from like a couple episodes in season one to an episode in season two. And then I went to the final season and I'm like, wait, all these infants are married now? Like, when the heck did this happen? But I think that's also, you know, if that's what you're watching, maybe you think that, you know, by the time I'm 22, I'll be married or whatever else, not to totally change topics. But I think one of the things that I'm hearing so clearly from you is we don't compare ourselves or model ourselves against these super rich because they're super rich. I'm not trying to be a Kardashian, right? But if I look at super powerful people in my industry or people who are just like me, who am I modeling my success against? Number one, I'm not going to know the true inner workings of their finances. And right now, everything for the in the coaching industry, for example, is loving to tell me how much money they made. But there's no proof that that's true. And in a lot of the ways, it is bullshit. And if it isn't, then that's fine. Good for them. But we got to look at what playing field we're putting ourselves on and and who we are level setting against i think is so interesting because it's so bizarre but you're so right like we don't look at the the main kids on gossip girl and go god i'll never have that i'll never have a private jet i can't just run away to paris like maybe we will for a second like in the dark recesses of our mind but it's damn true that you're like well wait a minute if that's what middle class is then my business must be failing Mm -hmm. because i have to cut expenses down sometimes or i don't know how i'm going to pay off the minimums on this credit card right now or whatever we hit one point of financial struggle and immediately the alarm goes off like ah panic 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 because of these expectations totally totally and yeah if there's one thing that i would wish for everybody it's to not compare your finances to anybody or not compare your life to somebody whose finances you are not intimately familiar with because yeah. People open up to me about their finances a lot, whether they're clients or just people I talk to. Um, And so many people look like they have great lives and then are in extremely stressful financial situations in reality. So I try and remind my clients of that because they'll say like, how can I not afford this when all of my friends can, you know, they're all doing fine. How does, you know, and I remind them that like, if your friends looked at your life, they'd think the same thing. They don't know about your credit card debt. They don't know about the student loan debt. They don't know that your savings is only X, Y, Z, you know? So everybody, we're all really good at presenting friends. Um, And we all know this already with all the like Instagram, you know, conversations around that, but I don't think we've fully internalized the degree to which that's true for finances. It's freaking fascinating because so much of the last 12 months, decade, everything has been about the emerging, just overwhelming truth that representation matters. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I'm, what is just kind of dawning on me is that representation of small business, representation of middle class, representation of working class matters. Yeah. So 
what shows, if anything, obviously not Gossip Girl, because the Humphreys <laughs> have perfectly manicured eyebrows year-round, and that is expensive. <laughs> but, but with all of that in mind, like, are there any shows um, that you can think of that you think are better depictions of the struggles of these things? Wow, that's a great question. And the only one that I'm thinking of is does not take place in modern era. The only one that came to my mind is The Americans. And I feel like it does, like it actually depicts what travel agents in suburban DC in the 80s could probably afford. They have a perfectly fine house. They don't go on a lot of vacations. They don't eat out. Like it's all just like, yeah, that seems reasonable. But then when compared to, you know, Gossip Girl middle class, that seems like they're like broke, but really they have a perfectly successful business. It's just that that's what a successful business can provide you. Um, But honestly, I think that a lot of shows don't. I think we've gotten, I think there's more representation of, um, of either extreme of like extreme wealth or there's, there is depiction of like poverty on shows, but there's not a lot of like true middle class. And most of the shows that I'm thinking of that pretend to be like middle class are, um, like I was watching this show recently um, called The Unicorn, I think it's about this like, I don't know, um, single dad whose wife had died and then now he's like a dating unicorn they're calling him because he doesn't have any like, he's like single in his forties but doesn't have any like emotional baggage. married his wife for 15 years um and um and anyways the family's there they talk about I think they live in like Oakland or something in really nice houses and then they talk about how they're like you know coupon like bargain shoppers and it's like no amount of couponing no amount of saving a dollar on toilet paper buys you this nice house and they have like four kids and it's just so I feel like it is much more common to show an extremely warped sense of middle class. And middle class is an extremely broad term. A lot of people identify as that. Um, and it's not a super useful term. But for the purposes of this, I guess I just mean anybody who's portraying, like, a character portrayed as not rich mm-hmm. um, and not poor. I'm mm-hmm. saying this. And... And yeah, so really most of them are living lives that cost many, many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars, but then they're acting as if they're on, you know, modest salaries. So I, I absolutely love that, that level setting, the expectation of it all, you know, how we're comparing ourselves positively, how we're comparing ourselves in ways that, that harm us. My, my final question for you on this note is this. If you look at the characters on Gothic Girl, if they all lost their money, everybody, rich and poor, lost their money completely, every dime. Yeah. Who would come out on top in three months? I think Chuck would. Um, I think he has, he grew up with like, he's the richest on the show. um, And he... But he grew up with a dad that was extremely dissatisfied with him, that he had an immense eager, uh, immense eagerness to like prove himself to his dad. And his dad passed away on the show. But um, I think that he just like 
has an endless drive to prove himself, Mm -hmm. which is more than a drive for money. It's a drive for um, like accolades. So I think he would find a way. He he would bounce back pretty well. (laughs) And and the other thing is we, we were talking about how we don't compare ourselves to the super rich. We don't see ourselves competing with the super rich, but if there was one expense on yeah. the show that one of the super rich kids spent money on that you, whenever you were watching the show or now are looking back and going, damn, I wish I could buy that, do that. What's like one fantasy that you saw play out on the show that you're like, Ooh, someday I hope I'm super rich enough to do this one crazy thing. I think that um, when Lily is like redecorating her apartment, I just it, like having like her like private shopper and designer to like make to buy like the perfect art for her for each wall to like buy the perfect furniture like I like nice things but I don't like have the most creative mind and so I would love to be able to have my own like private decorator and interior shopper that sounds great. So freaking lootly. I could not agree more. Kate, it has been an absolute blast having you on the show. I could talk to you all day, but my listeners want to know where can they find you? How can they get in touch with you? Definitely. So you can find me on my website, which is beyondmoney.co. So not.com, but beyondmoney.co. And my calendar is linked there. So I'd love to chat with any of you wonderful listeners, and you can also find me on Instagram, which is also at beyondmoney.co. So, freaking tastic. Everybody, I will be back in just one minute with my final thoughts and your homework for the week. Well, hey there, listeners. My first full time job paid $19,000 a year. I was making more money than I ever expected as an early 20-something with a theater degree, and so I was entirely content. I could pick up the occasional bar tab for my friends and venture beyond the clearance aisle once in a while. What could be better than that? Now, 15-ish years later, $19,000 covers the operating expenses of my tiny empire for a little under five months. My own early 20-something staff are cutting their teeth in my business, and I'm trying to walk the tightrope every day of balancing what they should be compensated with what I can realistically afford. I tell you this to show you that at the end of the day, income really is just a number. What $19,000 meant to me in 2007 couldn't seem further from the truth or reality as it does now. What it means to me now will likely, hopefully, evolve over the next year and the next 15 years too. Now to you, $19,000 could be an amazing quarter, a damn good first year, or the biggest failure imaginable. I don't know your life. I don't know your overhead expenses, your debt, your obligations, your dreams, and you don't know mine. So basing your success and desired income on what you think your competitors are earning simply won't work. Your best guess is likely faulty logic on top of fictional math. 
Your homework this week is to set your revenue and profit goals for the next year, but this time, keep your eyes on your own paper. Leave should and other comparisons out of your equations. Base it on real numbers, your prices, your list size, your credit card minimum payments, whatever your $15 honey is, as long as it's factual and it's your own. Then look at that number and see how your relationship with it has changed throughout your life. Are you aiming high enough? And more importantly, are you giving yourself enough credit for how far you've already come? Too Legitimate to Quit is brought to you by the Non-Sleazy Sales Academy and me, your host, Annie P. Ruggles. If you struggle to sell because you don't know how to put a price on all that goodness in you and you don't like the way that your competitors do it, I have great news for you. You can find my free challenge, Making Selling Easy Without Getting Sleazy, anytime at www.annieprugglescom slash easy, not sleazy. Our show is edited and produced by Andrew Sims of Hypable. Our fabulous theme tune is by Riley Horbacio, who I found on Fiverr. Our gorgeous podcast art is by Francois Vigneault, who I found on Upwork. And our marketing team is led by the unbelievably life-saving Nick Bonitatibus. Don't forget to check today's show notes for more information about our fabulous guests, plus some continuing resources and some Etsy finds from other super fans of today's topic. All pop culture elements mentioned in this episode remain the sole intellectual property of their respective owners. I do not own them, so please don't sue me.